0: So, why don't I pray, and then we'll we'll dive into that, Father? Thank you so much for your Word, and Lord, thank you for all that it's taught us so far through this series. Uh, Lord, thanks for the ways that it's challenged us and encouraged us and helped us. And Father, we pray that your Word would do that uh, even today as we look at it again. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we uh, as we dig into this, I was thinking this week that. Um, Emmy and I, we used to always vacation wrong, I don't know if anyone has done this, but we would go on vacation and we'd go to really cool places and we would just pack the whole time that we're away from morning till night of like, we want to see this place and go to that museum and eat at this place and then we got to go for a walk over there and we have to see this and, and we'd get to the end of our vacation and we'd be more tired than when we left. Uh, Case in point, um, and again, remember we were living in Europe, so it's not like we just gallivant over to Paris whenever we want to from here, but we were living in England, so it was a cheap flight, and we went to Paris one time, and uh, Emmy's sister and brother-in-law, they came to visit us. It was their sort of big vacation, and Emmy and I were like, okay, we got to get to the Louvre, we got to get to the Musée d'Orsay, we got to see the Eiffel Tower, we got to go to Sacre Coeur, we got to go up the Arc de Triomphe, we got to do it all, we have to get it all in. Uh, in these few days that we have, and so we'd wake up in the morning like ready to go and go out the door, and we'd be like kind of encouraging Emmy's sister and brother, I'm like, "Come on, let's let's go. We got you know time is ticking, and we're only in Paris for you know a few days. We got to see it all." And they're like, "Yeah, you know, let's just let's have a coffee and a croissant, and then we'll go out." And then we'd get out and we'd walk like ten steps, and then uh, inevitably, my brother-in-law, he's a great guy, but he would say you know, why don't we just get some wine and some cheese and bread? We'll just go back to the Airbnb and just kind of relax. And everyone was like, no, we've got to get to the Musee d'Orsay. We've got to get to where we need to go. And we realized after this that, that we were vacationing wrong all along, and they got it right, that they wanted to go and enjoy. They wanted to go and have rest. And we would go and be like, we've got to get it all in. Um, and so we used to think, so we learned from them the right way to vacation. And we used to think... That just the act of getting away is what would give us rest. That if we just pushed pause on our normal lives and went to this other place, that we would finally have rest. Uh, Yet in all our searching for rest, we just weren't finding it. And instead, we were getting more weary in the process. And I actually think most of our solutions for rest are misplaced. That most of us, a lot of the time, we're looking for rest, but we've misplaced where we find it. Uh, And it seems the more and more we look to those solutions, the more weary we become. You know, it's why binging a whole series on a weekend, you're actually more tired than you started. There is a rest, though, that if we seek it, it's going to give us, as our text says, rest on all sides. Did you hear that when Jose read it? uh, Chapter 21, verse 44, it says, The Lord gave them rest on every side. And doesn't that sound great, rest on every side? Rest from your work, rest from your fears, rest from your anxieties, rest from your difficult relationships, rest from your finances. You name the side, and what if you had rest from that? And we tend to think, if I could just change my circumstances, I'll find rest. If I can go on vacation, if I can change my job, if I can save enough money, if I can avoid that relationship. But here's the thing. True rest isn't in our circumstances. It's actually found in the one who supersedes all of them. The one who orders them, the one who's arranged them. And what we see in Joshua chapters 12 all the way through 22 is that rest is found in the promises of God, not in our circumstances. True rest has far more to do with the promises and work of God on our behalf than it does our circumstances. And so we're going to look at that theme today by looking at three excerpts from chapters 12 to 22. Um, And what you get, by the way, when you, you turn to chapter 12 and it just has a list of all the kings that they defeated. And you get to chapter 13 and pretty much all the way through the end of chapter 22 is a description of the dividing up of the land with a few other important bits thrown in there. Uh, And obviously, like I said, we're not going to cover all of that in great detail. But as you read through it, there's three themes that emerge uh, pretty quickly. Number one is uh, these are three points. Number one is there is a land of promise. The second theme is there's a person of promise. And then thirdly, there's actually a promise of refuge. So a land of promise, a person of promise and a promise of refuge. Uh, So let's take a look at these three promises and just see how it is that the Lord wants to give us rest on all sides. So first, the land of promise. And like I said, this entire section has to do with the dividing up of the land between the 12 tribes of Israel, of who would live where. And let's be honest, uh, there's a reason I didn't have the whole thing be read, because we'd all fall asleep. Uh, and you, you, know, if you sat down to read it, it, it is mind-numbingly boring. It really is. It's boring. Um, whereas, you know, it's really hard to put down chapters 1 to 11 with all the exciting wars and the killings and the hailstones coming from the sky and all that. It's really hard to put that down. But you get to chapters 12 to 22, and you're doing well to stay awake. But I want to think about, think about this. It's, there's 11 chapters in the book of Joshua, 11 chapters dedicated to tedious details of who would live where and what would be their northern boundary and their southern boundary and their eastern and western boundaries, and which tribe is to the north of this one and which one is to the south and which one is to the east. Now, to put that into perspective, that's two thirds the length of the book of Romans, which is the most densely packed uh, theological book in the Bible. Two thirds of it. Uh, That's more, 11 chapters more than half as long as the book of John, which is John's telling of Jesus' life. Uh, And by the way, it's longer than all three chapters of John's New Testament letters. He wrote three of them. There are less. Uh, There are less chapters in that than there are in the dividing up of the land in Joshua. So why so much detail? Why would he go into so much detail here? Why does this matter? Why is it here? Well, let me show you. And I want you to see this in our passage. Look again at verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had what? Sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had what? Sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Verse 45, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. So that's roughly four times in three verses. The author says that God fulfilled every single one of his promises. But not one promise failed. Now, for the force of this passage to really land, you need to know some history because you need to know that when you need to know when these promises were made. That back in Genesis 15 and 17, that's when God promised Abraham the land. Here's your history. That was 900 years, roughly 900 years before Joshua and Israel took possession of it. Israel had been waiting for 900 years from the time God promised the land to Abraham and had him walk its borders in the book of Genesis. So what's the great lesson here about the way God gives them the land of promise? It's this. Our God not only gives good promises, but he he keeps all of his promises down to the very last detail. And what that means is you can rest. That's the reason you can rest. Because look at what the fulfillment of the promises of God, look at the fulfillment of it. Look at it again in verse 44. God gave them rest on every side. And very simply, here's what this shows us. You will only find true rest when you rest in the promises of God. You're not going to find it in your circumstances. You're not going to find it in the strength that you can build for yourself. You will only find real rest when you rest in the promises of God. So let's just take a step back and look at some of the promises he's made to you. I I wish I had more time because I could go on and on and on. But I'm just going to give you a few from the Bible. A few of the promises that God has made to you. Do you remember this from Joshua chapter 1? He said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you remember that? Verse 9 of Joshua chapter 1, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah 40, here's a good example. Here's a promise. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How's that for strength and courage? A couple verses later, Isaiah 40. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You know this verse. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Here's another promise from Isaiah chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, here's some familiar language. I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, does that sound familiar to Joshua? They will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. These are promises from God to you. How about in the New Testament, Matthew chapter six, this is Jesus saying, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you what? Rest. I could go on and on quoting these promise after promise after promise that God has given to us. But listen to this. If you are in Christ, all of these promises are yours. It actually says in the New Testament that all of God's promises are yes in Christ. All of them God will keep down to the very last detail. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, James 1, 17. says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights. Who does not change like shifting shadows. So he made a promise 900 years before. And now as Joshua and Israel enter into the land, he keeps it down to the very last detail. Why? Because he does not change like shifting shadows. This means that the very same God who fulfilled his promise down to the very last detail to Israel, he does not change. And if he did it for Israel, he will do it for you. Now there's a risk in all the details that we'll miss out then on the nature of the promises. Because there's 11 chapters of detail, that's why it's there. But there's a risk that as you read through it and your eyes glaze over you miss out on the nature of the promises. But the nature of the promises actually shows up in verse 45 of what Jose read to us. Look again, Joshua 21, verse 45. Now one of the Lord's, what kind of promises? Good. Promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. That's the nature of the promises of God. That's that they're good. Now, let's think about it in the context of this passage. When you have something good, don't you categorize it? Don't you categorize it? Don't you ponder it? Don't you think about it in minute detail? I was thinking, I was actually remembering back to uh, Halloween when we were kids. And I guarantee almost every single one of you did this. You got your costume on. You got your pillowcase or whatever, your plastic pumpkin And you went around and you rang the doorbell and people put things in it. And then what did you do when you got home? You counted it. You categorized it. You put the Butterfingers and the Snickers over here and the dots and all the other garbage over there. (laughs) And you thought about it. And you pondered it. You counted it up. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but just listen to some of the detail back in chapter 15. You can turn there if you want to. Chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 2. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Dead Sea, crossed south of Scorpion Pass. That's actually kind of a cool name. Continued on to Zin and went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past Hezron up to Adar and curved around the to Karka, then it passed along to Amazon and joined the wadi of Egypt, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. This is their southern boundary. That's one boundary of one tribe. And it gives the detail of all the boundaries of all the tribes. And you might not get much enjoyment out of it, but Israel did. What an act of worship for them. What an act of worship for them. To recount it. To ponder it. To meditate on it. Why? Because it was good. It was good. And writing this out in such great detail in the Bible. Israel teaches us something. That if we got it. We would find such fuel for rest. That we would find peace no matter the circumstances that we have. Now. I can't promise you that I'm not going to have another dog illustration soon, and I realize I opened the floodgates last week. I've been holding on to this one actually for a long time. Uh, when we first got our dog, uh, we when we picked him up, we picked him up at a pet shop, and we bought food there. And about two weeks later, we ran out of food, so I need to go buy new food. And there's a pet shop down the street from us where they sell dog food, and I thought I'm just going to go there because I'm not the kind of person who plans ahead. I'm just, when we run out, I can walk to that shop. And so we ran out of food. And so me and the dog, we had him for about two weeks. We walk down to the shop and we go in and he is plastered to my leg. He is terrified of any other human being, totally plastered to my leg. And one of the, the ladies that work in the shop was trying to, you know, coax him out of his shell a little bit. So she gets a treat and she gets down to his level and she's holding out a treat for him and he will not take it. He's terrified. He's shaking. I can feel him. He's shaking. He's he's scared. He's nervous. And after I apologized to her for his complete rudeness, I remember exactly what she said. Because it's almost biblical what she said to me. And this will sound familiar because I I already read this to you. Here's what she said to me. She said, right now, he's learning that every good gift comes from you. Those are her exact words to me. It's almost James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift. That's why they list it out. This is a good gift. It's a perfect gift. It's precisely what God had promised to them, and He came through. Now let me suggest this: that one reason we feel weary, one reason we feel tired is because we don't believe that, either intellectually or practically, that God gives us good gifts. So we either deny it in our mind, or we just practically don't take it, don't enjoy it. And so you can't rest because you always think you need more, you always think you need better than what God has already given you. Except, except the Bible says that everything He's already given us is good and perfect and is a fulfillment of his unchanging promise. And so it could be that you're exhausted and weary because you haven't taken the time, get this, to rest in and to enjoy the good gifts he's already given you. Have you emptied out the pillowcase and counted them up and categorized them? We're often trying to change our circumstances to get better circumstances, to bring about a change or an improvement that will finally give us the rest that we need. But there's actually a rest that's available in spite of our circumstances, and it's found in the very, 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 very good promises of God that he has already given to us. And so our God is a God who keeps his promises, and the evidence of that is that he gave Israel the land that he promised them 900 years before. And not only did he give it to them, but he gave it to them down to the detail of what he had promised. And the reason those 11 chapters are there is because Israel is worshiping God for being a God who fulfills his promises and being a good God. So that's the land of the promise, but I also want you to see the person of promise. Now in the book of Joshua, the person of promise is actually, a surprise cameo appearance. Uh, because in chapter 14, you meet Caleb, And uh, once again, for this part of the story to land with all its force, you actually need to know some history. And so in the book of Numbers, remember this, 40 years before Joshua and Israel entered the, the land, so 40 years before what we've been studying takes place, Moses was the leader, and Moses is at the border, and he sends 12 spies into the land to scout it out. But when the 12 spies came back, 10 of them said, there's no way we can do this. We can't do it. There's giants living in there, and we're like grasshoppers to them. They will crush us. But remember, two spies came back and said, no, we can do it. We can do it because the Lord will fight for us. So let's not disobey the Lord, but let's follow him into the land that he promised us. And those two spies are Joshua and Caleb. But the nation didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb, and that's why they wandered around the desert for 40 years until that entire generation died off, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones from that generation that lived and got to go into the land. And back in Numbers 14, God said this about Caleb. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So that's Caleb. And we actually, we only ever meet him again. In Joshua chapter 14. So he does this amazing thing back in Numbers and you never hear his name again until chapter 14. But it's in here because if you've been reading the book of Numbers and heard the promise that God gave to Caleb and now you get to Joshua and they're dividing up the land if you're paying attention at all you should be wondering hey I wonder what happened to old Caleb I wonder if God fulfilled his promise to the old man. I mean, he must be dead and gone now. After all the wandering, after all that war, surely he died off at some point. But instead, in Joshua 14, you read this in verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephna, the Kenizzite, said to him. I think that's my family line, by the way, the Kenizzites. You know what the Lord said to Moses... The man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And then Caleb actually goes on to recount the story of his spying out the land and then trying to convince everyone they could win. And then this, skip down to verse 10. Now then, just as the Lord, what? Promised. He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. This is an 85 year old man. I never met either of my grandfathers, they both died before I was born, but both of my grandmothers lived to see 90. And I can just imagine this, well, I sort of can. Uh, So my paternal grandmother, she had dementia, and a few weeks after my dad and my uncles put her into a care home, Uh, the care home called them one morning and said, you got to move her somewhere else. And my dad's like, well, why? And the story goes that at about 3 or 4 a.m., she broke out, and they were looking all over for her, and they found her walking up the street with serious intention and purpose in a direction. And they said, Ada, what are you doing? And she's like, Get away from me, I have to get to work. And she hadn't worked for 40 years. She hadn't worked for 40 years. Um, And so I guess this is what I can picture. Here's an over 90-year-old woman who has all the vigor and strength of a woman 40 years younger. But still, if I'm honest, I can't quite picture Caleb, this 85-year-old man, ready to go out and fight. I'm struggling to picture that. But that's what it says. And so you could read this and just be amazed at his strength and vigor. You could read this and be amazed because that is extraordinary that this 85-year-old man is like, I'm going to go out and lead the army and I'll take it. But there's actually something way more extraordinary in this passage, and it's not his age. It's not that he's 85. It's this, it's the 45 years. 45 years Caleb has been trusting the promise of God. You and I struggle to wait 45 seconds, let alone 45 minutes or even 45 days for God to fulfill his promises. (laughs) Caleb waited 45 years. And at the end of 45 years, he still believed the promise so much that he, an 85-year-old man, was willing to go out in battle and lead the army in battle and fight the Anakites himself. And by the way, the Anakites, uh, they're the ones who, when they said there's giants living in the land, that's the, that's the people. Those were the giants. And Caleb, at 85 years old, 45 years after the promise, he trusts the promise of God so much even after all this time that he's willing to lead the battle. Look again, uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 21. I think it's 12, actually. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that when the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me. I will drive them out, as he said. And just think about how easy it would have been for Caleb to give up. Forty years of wandering and watching everyone in his generation die. All of his friends die. Only he and Joshua are left. And then five years of war. His entire life, by the way, he never owned a home. He was born a slave. He wandered as a refugee. He lived through a war. And how easy would it be for him to believe that God reneged on the promise? And yet day after day, week after week, month after month of frustration and disappointment, year after year of dreams that failed to come true, Caleb remains faithful and he never wanders in his confidence in God. How does he do that? How does a person do that? Well, the text shows us. Remember what I said? Remember that verse I read from the book of Numbers about Caleb? Let's put it on the screen because I want you to see this. And as I do that, make sure you have a Bible open to Joshua 14 because you need to see that too. Okay, so Numbers is going to be up here, Joshua 14 in front of you. Here's the verse from Numbers 14 again. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me, and notice this word, wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Now, look down Joshua 14. Uh, Look around the middle of verse uh, verse 8. However, this is Caleb speaking, however, I followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. But then look at this all the way down at the end. Look at verse 14. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, ever since. Do you know what that means? It means he went in and he did it. Because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And here's what I think this shows us. I think this shows us that Caleb was a a planter of seeds. Over the course of those 45 years, rather than harden his heart, rather than be like, God, when are you going to come through? When are you going to come through? When are you going to come through? Come on, God, let's show up. What are you What are you doing? Rather than harden his heart, he planted seeds of the promise over and over and over again. The text doesn't tell us, but what I picture is Caleb being frustrated that he's eating manna again and packing up his tent to move again. I picture him going back and saying, the Lord swore to me that I would have this land as an inheritance and he's a good God. And so he's gonna come through. That's how you get to 85. We've talked about this a number of times as we've gone through the book of Joshua, that those who are strong and courageous are those who do the things of everyday faithfulness. Those who plant the seeds, little by little, tiny seed of faithfulness, one day and another and another and another, over time will bear the fruit. And Caleb is in here, he's in Joshua 14, because he's an example of this. He's a person of promise because he took the promises and he planted it down deep. And so when he turns 85, he's still clinging to that promise. And here's the thing. You could actually argue that at 85, Caleb is stronger than he was at 40. He even says it. He's like, I'm, I, I have more. I'm just as vigorous. I'm just as strong as 40. But actually his trust in the promises of God must be stronger than when he was 40. And you do not become like that on accident. You don't just wake up one day and find you're a person of promise. And so like Caleb, the person of promise is a person of patience, of long suffering, of perseverance. And so like Caleb, we ought to regularly plant the seeds of the promise over and over and over again. All right. So we've seen the land of promise. We've seen the person of promise. And finally, now the promise of refuge. This is a little bit random. because It's a lot of text. But thirdly, now, the the promise of refuge. And if you remember from the passage uh, we had read to us, it said that God gave Israel rest on every side from war. And so what that's saying is God wants them to have rest from external enemies on every side, every border that they've listed. Uh, The ability then to enjoy the land of promise and peace and security from war. But when you get to chapter 20, you also find out that God gave them rest on the inside as well. Another way of putting it would be to say that God made a way of salvation for those who needed it. That's another way of putting it. Um, where we used to live in Liverpool, England, I used to walk the same street every day uh, a couple of times. And I used to walk past uh, this little stone in the ground. Uh, and apparently back during the founding of the city, which is in the 1400s or something like that, uh, that stone would have stood probably about as tall as this, uh, this podium here, about three or four feet tall. And uh, the, I have a friend there who's a taxi driver. And taxi drivers can always tell good stories. And he grew up in Liverpool. And so I just believe whatever he said. And what he said to me is, uh, he goes, hey, Ken, you know that stone you walk past every day? Uh, he goes, that's the sanctuary stone. And the story he tells is that, you know, if you went to the, the old market in the center of town and you stole something from one of the stalls, you could run to that stone and if you touched it, they couldn't arrest you. And I was like, come on, that can't be true. (laughs) Surely you've made that up. Um, I did a little bit of research, and and it's not, that's probably not true, but that's probably not too far from the truth. Because apparently there were four of these stones, and they marked out the boundaries of the city. And apparently the law enforcement could only operate inside the stones. And so apparently if you did go outside of them, you had sanctuary from the law enforcement from the city. Now, I'm sure that's probably not even totally true. (laughs) But it is an entertaining twist on what the stones actually meant. And actually what we read in Joshua 20, it's not far off from that kind of a story. Because in chapter 20, we read about the cities of refuge. And what it means is that when someone was suspected of a crime or had unintentionally killed another person, it was part of the culture that a family member of the person who was killed would go and avenge the death, life for life. And so if someone in your family was killed, either intentionally or unintentionally, you would send an avenger, not a Marvel avenger, but an actual avenger, to go and kill the person who killed your family member. Uh, That sort of thing still happens today, by the way. It happens in gang culture. Uh, It happens in several cultures around the world, uh, these vengeance killings. Uh, But look what God provided for his people in chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood." Which, by the way, Marvel needs to, come on, avenger of blood, that needs to be a character. And then it goes on to say that they can make their case in court. And if they're found innocent of intentional murder, so not murder in like the first or second degree, Uh, But truly accidental, look what it says, uh, about halfway through verse 4. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive, because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. So this means that the guilty one, the one who did the accidental killing, has a safe place from the avenger of blood. And what this shows us is that God provided not only external rest from war, but internal rest from the consequences of sin. In essence, God provided a way for there not to be continual fighting inside the nation. So they're protected on the outside, and now God provided a way for them to be protected on the inside, that there would be rest from vengeance killings. And here's specifically how. Look at verse 6. And here's where this whole thing gets really interesting. Verse 6, chapter 20 they are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So just to recap, if the person was found guilty, not a first or second degree murder, if that was the case, then they had punishments for that. But if there was truly an accidental murder, he was to stay in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Wait, What? So you you come and live in the town, and you can be there, and we'll protect you until the high priest dies. And after the high priest dies, you can go home again. And that is a strange detail. Why can he only go free after the death of the high priest? Well, scholars have puzzled over this for generations. But if you take the view that I do of the Bible, that everything in it is meant to point you to Jesus Christ in one way or another, it all of a sudden becomes crystal clear what this means. In Joshua's day, the death of the high priest, as best we can tell, was effectively a death of atonement for the crimes committed while that priest served as high priest. In other words, an atonement for the blood that had been shed. And so when the death of the high priest was announced, that man was set free. His slate was wiped clean. He could begin again. He could go home. And so when the news of the death spread throughout Israel, the gates of these cities were opened and everyone who had been living behind the refuge of the city gates could walk out in utter freedom because their sins for which they were guilty had been atoned. They were free because of the death of the high priest. And of course, then, if you take the view that I hold of the Bible, then this is a clear pointer to Jesus Christ. The great high priest who it says in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it says this: Jesus Christ is a merciful and faithful priest, faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And this verse actually provides double explanation for us of this strange line in Joshua 20. First, it provides the explanation that the death of a high priest does provide atonement for the sins of people. But secondly, and even more brightly, that the death of Jesus Christ makes atonement for everyone. Because later on in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, it says this of Jesus Christ, it's about him. Such a high priest truly meets our need. The one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so, Joshua chapter 20 is just a little hint, just a little nudge towards the one day understanding of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Now, those who read this in Joshua's day, they wouldn't have understood this, but we can because we have the entirety of God's revelation in the Bible, and so we get the full picture that Jesus Christ, Jesus, who has the same name as Joshua, provides us with a city of refuge in which we can hide from the consequences of our guilt and of our past actions. And not only a city where we can hide, but an open door into liberty and life because he is the greater high priest who has died and his death has made atonement for all of our sins. And all we have to do... All we have to do is run to him. He's the sanctuary stone. He's the one that we run to. We put our hand on him and then the law can't touch us. He's our city of refuge. He's the gates who we run into and we are protected. All who are found in him are safe. And so here we are once again looking at Joshua and yet he only points us to the greater Joshua to Jesus Christ himself. And so here we are saying that Joshua was able to give his people rest, but only temporarily imperfect rest. But instead, Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, do you remember what he said? Come to me, you who are weary in the land and you who are heavily burdened by the conflict and restlessness of your life and all your weakness, all your brokenness, come to me and I will give you rest. And so it doesn't matter what you've done. You can run to him. He's the city of refuge. He will fling open the gates and let you in. He will give you rest. And so, what burdens are you carrying? What wrongs have you committed? Are you restless? Are you broken? Are you burdened? Come to him. Come to him. Jesus is coming to me, and I will be for you a city of refuge, and I will give you rest. And if we can get that, then we'll find rest no matter what our circumstances are. We'll find rest no matter what we're facing. Rest on all sides and rest on the inside. Come to me and I will be for you a city of refuge and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you that all your promises are yes in Christ. We thank you for all the ways that you've been good to us. Uh, Lord, forgive us for not counting them up, for not pondering them. Lord, may we find great delight in all the promises that you've given to us. And Lord, we find rest. Lord, we bring all of our burdens, all of our brokenness, all of our shame to you. And we ask that you would give us rest. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen.